welcome to another episode of the OG Ops Pod. I am your host for today's episode, Brandon Rudlinger, and uh, not joining me today, Jordan Henderson. I Honestly, he says his flight got delayed, but I think he just avoids the topic that we're talking about today, which we'll get into in a second. But I do have the perfect guest to talk about attribution with me today is uh, Joe Lee. Joe is the VP of Growth Marketing at Entra, one of my good buddies, and honestly, one of my thought partners when it comes to all things B2B marketing. Joe, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Brandon. I'm kind of wondering, I've never had a chance to meet Jordan, but if he's trying to avoid meeting me or something, I should be <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I don't know. I don't know. It's. Uh, I think this time it's definitely the topic. All I don't right, know why right. he has such an aversion to attribution, but he, he certainly does. All right. So the reason I wanted to bring you on is you've built one of the most, I mean, honestly, it is the best customer attribution model that I've seen. And it's one of those things that everyone is trying to figure out, right, is this attribution question. And some people like Jordan actually just actively avoid it. But let's dive into B2B marketing attribution and just you know, quick high level overview. Why is attribution important? What is it? Why is it important? Great. Before we dig into that, I definitely want to say, while I had a lot to do with building it, I would want to give full credit or most of the credit to our uh, VP of BizOps, uh, Joe Devorkin, who really was my partner in building this and, and kind of is the genius behind it. So I definitely want to start off by acknowledging that. But in terms of what I think attribution is, I think the simplest way I could explain it is, you know, connecting marketing activity with revenue to show the value of marketing. You could probably go much deeper than that. But at the end of the day, I think that's what we're all trying to do when we're talking about attribution. Right, exactly. I mean, there's yeah, some of the obvious benefits, like you're trying to bring your cost down, you're trying to speed up deal cycles, you're trying to yeah, bring more value to the company. But there's a lot of other things that I think good attribution does. Like it, it does align sales and marketing. It does help you optimize your execution. It does help your headcount planning. It really helps your revenue operations. So yeah, I think there's a lot of other benefits to having good, good B2B marketing attribution. But you and I were talking offline about when do you really start needing to actually put together a really good B2B attribute or marketing attribution model? Because honestly, I, I'm at a point right now where we're yeah, we're still under 100 people. We're right at about 100 people. But I know you guys are much bigger and it matters a lot more to you. Yeah, you know, I mean, I think I would say day one, you know, whatever, whatever marketing role you're in, you should be thinking about attribution from day one. That said, I don't think you need a full blown, you know, multi-touch model on day one. And right. I might even argue you don't need that until year two or three, you know, depending on your, in your context. You know, when I think about marketing attribution, I think we all need to start in what I might call like single touch, which is kind of made up. You're not going to see that. But what I mean by that, when you actually Google the different types of attribution model, you'll probably see somewhere first touch or last touch. And if I were to, you know, generalize that for, you know, all the variety of, of marketers who might be listening to this, you know, it's, it's single touch. And it's, it's really figuring out that single point that's most important that marketing can basically say, I can take responsibility for this lead, this, you know, e-commerce purchase, or in, in the B2B case, this opportunity. Why I say single touch is I think depending, you know, one thing a lot of marketers get really hung up on is they hear a podcast like this and go, oh, I need to do what Joe did without any context for what their business is or what their go-to-market motion is. And I think that's probably where a lot of folks go wrong when they're trying to build marketing attribution models. I think your attribution model needs to match your go-to-market strategy and needs to best Absolutely. highlight in a defendable way, hey, marketing generated this. So generally speaking, when I think single touch, I would say B2B enterprise, the last touch before opportunity is probably the place you want to focus on. So imagine I go to an event and someone meets me at the booth and that turns into a sales opportunity. That last touch was the event. And so now I can basically say, you know, marketing gets credit for that opportunity. That's really different than like a B2C e-commerce play where you right. know, marketing might be doing a bunch of Facebook ads like that could literally be the first touch and could lead to revenue. And in that case, you might your single touch model might focus more on the first touch. Yeah. What about a situation where, say, they a lead downloads the complete guide to whatever on your website and then the ADR team or the SDRs or whatever you call them now looks at that lead and says, oh, that's the right ICP. 
that's the right persona. Let me go after them. And they're the one that actually turns that into an opportunity. Where do you give credit in that case? Sure. I think it's an interesting question. I'll take a step back and, you know, say, I think most of the time in B2B enterprise that I've seen, you know, just downloading an ebook probably is a fairly cold lead still. And there needs to be some nurturing or additional marketing engagements before that ADR team will successfully convert that lead. And so while I think that specific situation is probably far and fewer in between in terms of a B2B enterprise context. And I think the way to capture that actually is for marketing. You know, I think after this whole ABM journey, I think I realized (laughs) I'm just kind of old school. I'm like, Lead scoring works. Like I think if, you know, yeah. someone downloads an ebook, you drop them into a nurture and you nurture them along and they have two to three significant engagement points, turn it into a lead scored MQL, pass it on to the ADR team and marketing basically, you know, has the last touch, you know, before the opportunity, you know, in that case, I think in a situation where, you know, the lead has entered the database because of an ebook, but it's still a fairly cold lead and the ADR team outbounds into that lead. You know, I'm fairly comfortable in a black and white, you know, last touch model saying, you know what, that was a sales outbound, you know, ADR outbound and and giving them credit. I do think, though, in B2B enterprise, the next phase of attribution after figuring out your single point of origin for your opportunity is probably to go to first touch to start really understanding how you're building your database. That, to me, you know, impacts less giving credit for who the opportunity came from. And more instructs us on, you know, how are we best building great databases to, you know, nurture contacts and to basically create, you know, warm up leads for sales. Yeah, I think you hit on it there. It's like, it, it kind of depends on what you're really looking at. What's the outcome that you're really looking for? And it kind of will help determine the kind of attribution that you're doing. Yeah. But yeah, when you're really getting into trouble or, or where it really is complicated is when you're trying to do like the full funnel start to finish attribution. And that's, yeah, in that case, we do have a lot of things actually don't even, like we might not even see, right? Like yeah. they might listen to a podcast. That's never going to show up on your attribution. They might, you know, send ebook to one of their colleagues that's never going to show up in your attribution so there's a lot of actual you know touch points that will never show up on your attribution model word of mouth community etc cetera, etc cetera. how do you take those into account sure i mean i think you're kind of leading to the meat of this conversation which is the custom multi-touch attribution model right. we built internally at entra and it's really funny. So, you know, I've been I've been in marketing now for almost 15 years, uh, startup tech marketing specifically, you know, for the last 10 years or so. And I remember when I first got started, there was this holy grail of attribution called multi-touch attribution. And everyone right. wanted it. And everyone thought this was going to be the solution to, you know, all our, our ROI problems and budget problems and, and all these things. And there were these really expensive tools like, you know, like Visible or, you know, Full Circle that was trying to crack this multi-touch yeah. nut. But no one could ever afford it. So like no marketer ever used it. So it just became, I think, this like unicorn idea and product, which is probably why uh, people hate, you know, attribution and, and this whole topic. <laughs> And what I've quickly realized, you know, to an earlier point we were talking about is most marketing teams probably don't need a model like that, you know, until way later, until you're starting to ask different questions. So like, so for example, in my experience, and I'm curious, you know, what what your experience is in, in a true B2B enterprise play where you have nine to 12 month sales cycles, marketing's ability and a really constrained TAM. So let's say a couple of thousand accounts that you're going after. Marketing's ability to generate new opportunities in a situation like that, at best is around 30 to 33% using kind of last touch model. Sure. Most of the time, the 66%, two thirds comes directly from sales, the relationships, the referrals, et cetera. Yeah. At a previous company, we had an advisor who was the former CMO of a uh, board member and advisor who was the former CMO of VMware. And when we told her our goal of 33% marketing source, she was surprised because uh, she, she said at VMware, it was under 20%. So oh, wow. So, you know, when you think about real B2B enterprise plays, it doesn't sound that great. Like, cool. (laughs) Like, you know, Mr. CEO, CFO, like our marketing team is rocking it. We're generating 33% of the pipeline. And they're just kind of like, okay, you know, can you do more? Like, like, it it just doesn't sound that great. It doesn't sound that impressive. Yeah. Yeah, it doesn't. 
so this is where I think really being able to answer some of the questions of, well, exactly to your point, how is marketing influencing all of the other parts of the journey, right? Like, you know, post opportunity, you know, all the touch points prior to a, an SDR or a, an AE, you know, doing an outbound call and, and opening up the opportunity, all the visits on the website that led to them asking for a referral and, you know, right, like marketing is influencing all along that nine month journey, but the last touch model is really only capturing one moment in time, right? And, and that's where I think the multi-touch model becomes really important. And that was actually really the impetus that really pushed us to accelerate the multi-touch model for mm-hmm. us. Because when I entered this fiscal year, or sorry, when I was planning this fiscal year and we started in January back last October, I thought this would be like a late 2023 project. Mm-hmm. And then what happened? Macroeconomics just slammed us. <laughs> and all of a sudden, my program budget was being sliced by 40%. You know, my uh, headcount plan was being sliced. I mean, we all went through the same thing. And all of a sudden, my CEO and CFO, who literally a year ago was like, we trust you. Here's the budget. You know, do whatever you need. Grow at yeah. all costs. Became, I want to understand every single dollar you're doing. And then we started to put up, you know, cost per opportunity amounts using a last touch model. And they were in the thousands, if not tens of thousands of dollars, because again, we are B2B enterprise. And then the numbers just started to look really bad. And so to protect the rest of our budget, <laughs> we started to need other ways to tell the story of what marketing was doing. And that's kind of what led to us really accelerating the multi-touch model. Yeah. When your CFO comes to you and says, you got to save somewhere, those pithy sayings from LinkedIn or whatever of like, don't marketing should be used to improve, not prove marketing. That doesn't help you at all, right? Yeah. All right. So walk us through how you actually built your model. Where did you start? Where would you recommend people start? Sure. So I joined here about a year and a half ago, and we had a Marketo instance set up and, you know, decent connection to Salesforce. We had lean data. So like the piping was all kind of working. And interestingly enough, we had visible set up and it already been set up for probably six months. And so I thought, great, like I can finally see the unicorn I've been chasing. (laughs) And I remember opening up the visible dashboard and it was just like a bunch of errors. And I was like, you know, working with my mops team and, you know, I mean, in all honesty, I had never seen like a functioning visible dashboard. So a (laughs) lot of what I was going off of was theoretical. And it was like four months of how do we fix visible? So, you know, we could actually pull all these magical insights we're talking about. And one thing I basically learned was because we are a consumption-based business model, we actually don't use the amount fields in Salesforce, like the standard Uh, amount fields. We manage our pipeline by logos only, like quantity of logos. And that was basically breaking all the pre-packaged visualizations that Visible was basically dependent on the amount field to start showing some of the stuff. mm -hmm. And the insight I got from that experience with multi-touch models is there's actually two problems you're trying to solve with multi-touch models. One is the activity capture or the touch point capture, whatever you want to call it. Mm-hmm. And capturing, you know, in a lot of cases beyond what Salesforce campaign object captures. Because I think some attribution tools I've seen really depend on the campaign object as kind of the source of truth for what you capture. But I think one of the nice things about Visible, for example, is they had the web cookie. So you can actually capture all digital engagement as well as part of that and kind of build your model there. So I actually think Visible does that really well and perhaps exceedingly well compared to some of its competitors. The other piece of it is the actual visualization and the analysis of that data. Mm. And that's probably where Visible falls short because basically if your kind of like HubSpot in that regard, like if your go-to-market motion doesn't match how they designed it, you're a little bit dead in the water. And that's kind of like ours. I'm guessing some of the attribution tools out there built on Salesforce for Salesforce probably has a little bit more flexibility like Salesforce in terms of the visualization. But that was the real piece that was missing. And so we basically just decided to build our own attribution model. And this is pretty hard to describe on a podcast. I (laughs) I will try my best. Really, believe it or not, we built it on Google Sheets. And we basically- Nothing wrong with that. We basically have an integration with both Visible and Salesforce 
and it automatically pumps all the raw data of every single touch point that Visible has captured and every single opportunity that Salesforce has captured into this Google Sheet. And we're basically using a UID to connect all the various touch points Visible captured with all the various opportunities that's in Salesforce. And we were using Google Sheets modeling basically to connect the data together and actually spit out a number. And we can, I want to pause there. We can dig into exactly how we calculate that number, but any any questions on that before we move no, on? No, I think that makes a lot of sense. How far back did you go in the data that you're pulling in to Google Sure, Sheet? That was actually fairly easy for us. We made some very radical changes to our Salesforce instance, both in terms of how we were capturing MQL and opportunity data, as well as implementing meta criteria mm. for to standardize basic sales stage progression back in July, 2022. So, you know, for us, it was really easy just to say, cool, we trust the data starting July, 2022. Starting at some point. And so we started our analysis from that point. You know, I mean, honestly, if you're lucky enough to be a part of an org with perfect data for years and years and years, (laughs) I don't want to say perfect. There's no such thing as perfect data. I was going to say. Reliable data for years and years and years. I mean, really, I don't think it matters as, as far back as you want to go because the model will... Once you build the model, it, it will spit out, you know, the analysis for as much data as you want. I mean, I'm sure there is a limit that we will eventually reach on Google Sheets in terms of how many rows of touch points we can export, but we haven't hit that point yet. And hopefully by then we would have programmatized our model into, I think the idea right now is to spit everything into our data lake and, and try to rebuild this in Looker, but that might be a, a late year or even a next year project because... Yeah, Sheets is great. We actually do 80% of our analysis in Google Sheets. There you go. <laughs> in, very, in very automated fashions. So. Oh, there you yeah. go. No, yeah, we, we still use Google. We use the hell out of Google Sheets. Yeah. But no, I, I, I like that. It's finding a point where you trust the data. And yeah, and honestly, having done this a few times before, sometimes it's even, oh, this is when we hired this ops person, so I trust the data. Or this is when we implemented this tool, so I trust the data from here on. Yeah. So, but yeah, it, it can't be, oh, just the last few months, yep. I, I'd want at least a few sales cycles worth of data in there, you know? Yep. So, okay, cool. So you got your data in there. What, what are you doing next? Sure. Yeah. So we have all the data in there and we're basically now, remember, we have touch point data from Visible, opportunity data from Salesforce, and we're trying mm-hmm. to, to match that data and given certain assumptions. So we basically looked at conversion rate for every sales stage we have and by product. And we use those conversion rates basically to multiply the assumed LTV. So remember, we don't use ACV amount field because we're... So we look at our business in terms of three-year LTV because we have like a ramp time in terms of consumption and then kind of like depending on the tier and the product, we kind of have an assumption in a three-year period how much revenue a certain opportunity is going to give us. So we basically use our conversion rates to multiply by LTV to, to spit out basically like a, a projected revenue that we can expect from that opportunity. So that's, I think, a pretty standard, you know, sales ops type of function. So now we have a projected LTV based on sales stage. This, so this is where the assumptions start. So we, we basically have a split where we say if it's marketing sourced, and remember, by my last touch definition, something is marketing sourced if the last touch before opportunity was a marketing event, field event, a demo form, you know, submission, submission, whatever. And then the SDR calls and then it's marketing sourced. So if it's marketing sourced, we give 50% of the LTV to marketing. We haven't divided that amount by channel yet, but just know, let's say we have a hundred thousand dollar deal. If it's marketing sourced, marketing gets credit, $50,000 of the credit. If it's sales sourced, meaning BDR, AE does an outbound call, but there are some marketing touch points associated with that opportunity. Marketing will get up to 20% of the credit. And we'll talk about this when we get to like challenges and evolution. It was a straight 20%. So we just said, yeah. across the board, not even. Yeah, yeah. In our V1, it was 20% across the board. That literally means sales could have ran the entire thing up until our closing stage, which is the last stage of our cycle. And if they sent a, a reach desk gift, 
to help close the deal, marketing all of a sudden picks <laughs> up twenty percent of the deal because you know they basically use the marketing gift to cl- help close the deal, right? So I, it, I'm okay. setting up a radical example for you yeah, to yeah, probably exactly. understand. Some, but, I could see that, the other way too. But, yeah, but yeah. so that was kind of our our initial assumption. And then, so let's take the marketing source example: hundred thousand dollars marketing source. Marketing now has fifty thousand dollars of the L- LTV. How do and and we have three touch points like marketing has touched that opportunity three different times. How do we split up that $50,000 into an individual touch point? So we built a modified, I guess, no, this would be a a straight W-shaped model. And we do basically by points. So first touch is the first digital touch point captured prior to lead creation or form fill. So if, if, let's say, an ad drove you to visit the website and we cookied you and picked you up, that ad gets 25% or 25 points of the pie. Then there's lead creation, which is the form fill. So maybe now I've retargeted you and you've downloaded an ebook. Oh, sorry, that retargeting campaign will get another 25 points for the lead creation. And then opportunity creation, especially because this is a marketing generated lead, that's the last touch in the cycle. So that's the event that you went to. So now The first ad that got you onto our website has 25 points. The second ad that got you to download the ebook has 25 points. The event that we met you at that finally got you to take a sales call got 50 points. And let's say along the way, you got some gifts and other things. Those all get three points. So let's say you Mm. got a direct mail package somewhere along the sales cycle as an accelerator that gets three points. And so now we have 103 points and we basically normalize that per by percentage. And I'm not going to try to do that in my head. So <laughs> that, that first touch is going to get like, what, 22%. That lead creation touch, 22%. That event's going to get 40 something percent. And that e-gift is going to get you know 3% or what, whatever that adds yeah. up to. And that's literally how we divide that $50,000 up into those four touch points. So then when you add that all up in the model you can basically start to see like a, imagine like a stack bar chart for Q1. Mm-hmm. And in Q1, project marketing attributed LTV is let's say $1 million. And, you know, 500 of that came from an event. And, you know, 200,000 of that came from this ad. And so that's kind of how it adds up. And you can, you start to see like a stack bar chart of kind of all your channels and how they're contributing to revenue. Got it. I love it. Okay. Now... Talk to me about intent data, because I know you pulled in intent data. And when, when you were showing me your model, I was like, dude, pull back intent data a little bit here. I, I do not like intent data, but what'd you end up doing with intent data? I'm actually, remind me again, what part of the model was that in that you remember? I think it was just, oh, I don't even remember, honestly. Do you not have intent data part of the model anymore? Yeah, we don't, no, we don't, we definitely don't use it as part of the model. The one place it has played in a little bit is so we use intent data so it's it's actually pretty interesting i don't know if i'm as bullish on intent data as as maybe you're remembering okay maybe maybe what you're actually thinking of is uh, we were having this conversation about mqls i was kind of saying like i think part of the pro like you know mqls have a bad rap i think i think the whole mql is dead thing was basically a brilliant marketing campaign by all these ABM vendors to basically sell more product. Because (laughs) what I love about MQLs and what most ops folks who are listening to this should love about MQLs is it's very trackable, right? Like marketing throws a lead over the fence and you know exactly one, it came from marketing and two, what's what's going on with it. And what what I've realized is what I started to do is always split MQLs into P1 or P2. I've also used hot and warm. And a, a P1 MQL is hard hand raiser. They filled out a demo form. You know exactly what they want. Like we have 60% conversion rate to first meeting with P1s uh, right now. I mean, it's like your, you know, like just your, your, your perfect set for a spike, right? And then what we do is we have P2 or warm MQL where we use lead scoring and those are the ones that, you know, kind of get those, you know, probably 15 to 25% conversion rates to first meeting. What I started to realize is if you set up a great P2 engine, the need for intent data, at least, you know, surfacing hot accounts to sales and stuff actually kind of starts to disappear. Like it starts to eat up into a lot of the value prop of a lot of these ABM platforms out there. 
because you're trusting basically the scoring model to serve up the right leads and prioritize them for your ADRs, BDRs to follow up on, as opposed to just saying, hey, this account is surging or this account is in purchase stage, you should follow up on it. It's actually letting the marketer have a little bit more control. Like, yes, the account is surging. And by the way, these individuals in these accounts are hyper engaged. ADR, follow up with these people first and be held to SLAs and be 100% trackable in the multi-touch model. I'm wondering of why we started to talk about this is it's a lot of the ABM thought leaders that are saying we don't need attribution models. CMO should be in charge of all pipeline. And, yeah. and, and, and I, I think, you know, I think it's because it really like when you're when your platform is basically saying focus on this account and go after it, you can't track it. Like, how do you actually know what marketing activity is leading to that ADR getting a successful meeting in a play like that? So that might be what we were talking about. And it's a little bit of an aside to this conversation. Yeah, yeah, I know there's there's one vendor out there that says you should never be targeting any accounts that don't have some form of intent. I think that's completely wrong. But, you know, that's what they have to say to sell more of their software, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> okay, cool. So all right, we, we talked about we talked about getting your data in. We talked about just kind of building your attribution model, assigning touch points. How do you actually go about now, like implementing this, rolling that out to the team, getting buy-in, that sort of thing? Yeah. So here's the funny thing. We built this and everyone was impressed by it. I shared it with all my peers like you and all my peers were impressed by it. I shared it with a you know a few startup founders and they're impressed by it. And, you know. <laughs> and then in practice what you realize is it becomes a secondary tool, not a primary tool. It's completely dislodged. Now I call this myth, you know, multi-touch models as the holy grail. And really at the end of the day, we still fundamentally report, you know, marketing has signed up for 33% of the pipeline or the revenue. And here's how we're doing it against that goal, right? Like I think, The reason you always start there and and kind of going back to an early point, why that's like the day one attribution model is because it's very defendable and you don't need to sit there and defend it. It's like, yeah, yeah. It always devolves into arguments about who should actually get credit for what things or for what opportunities. Yeah, exactly. And so that's still how we run our business or like our, our performance, you know, business day to day where the attribution model has really started to help us is start to answer secondary questions. Like here's a big one in a B2B enterprise sale where, you know, we have a couple hundred customers and deep relationships with CS, these customers, like what is the likelihood of marketing being able to originate a deal, right? Right. Like an upsell cross-sell deal, like next to zero, you know, like in almost like actually in our uh, Salesforce instance, the moment a customer closes, we auto open the cross sell into the next product. Yeah. So our, because like that is like the AM's job is to make that connection. So like even operationally for us, there is zero way that I will ever get credit in a last touch model for a cross sell deal. And so this is where the influence model, when we started to actually call the multi-touch model, and I think this is very strategic. You know, you think, oh, single touch to multi-touch, that means multi-touch is better. We actually have just started internally calling it the influence model. We have mm. the marketing generated last touch model, which, you know, we, you know, we're holding ourselves accountable to every quarter. And, you know, uh, that's what we report our wins and successes on. And then we have our influence model that can start to help us answer questions like, how is marketing influencing upsell, cross-sell deals? What is the overall ROI of all of our marketing activity, right? That, you know, so for, and a great example of this is if you just use a last touch model to evaluate your display programs, you're going to very quickly cut all your display budget because the likelihood of a display ad actually leading to an opportunity is next to zero. Especially in in enterprise. Yeah. It's never going to happen. Exactly. But those display arts are getting captured by our influence model with the first touch point. And so now we can start to say, you know, how are these like more influence channels actually contributing to revenue? 
and start to show the value of things like organic social, of display, blog posts, right? You know, very rarely is a blog post ever going to be the last thing someone sees before they fill out a demo request, you know, you know, things like that. So I think that's, you know, that's where a lot of the, uh, and then be start, you know, what I'm able to do now is basically have like a cost per, you know, for every dollar you put into this channel, you can kind of expect X dollars of LTV out, right? And, and mm. so we're, we're able to start justifying some of these more influence channels. Now, is that at the end of the day gonna get us a ton more budget for it? Probably not, right? Yeah. But it's gonna at least help justify the existence of it so that you're not just, you know, like optimizing out of all these more influence brand channels because they're not directly leading to opportunities. Okay, so yeah, no, that I think that brings up a whole nother point is like I, I know you've done in previous companies, you've done something like a podcast, which yeah, that's never gonna show up on like even in your influence channel. So yep. how do you go about making an argument for a channel like that? Because we've we've done a podcast in the past. Jordan and I did one together at a previous company and it never showed up on our attribution, but sure. there were so many benefits for the podcast, not just, you know, opening doors at deals, but also, you know, it it got us a lot of candidates. There there were many candidates that were like, you guys are such a cool company because I listened to your podcast and you even have a podcast. I think I want to join the company, stuff like that. So anyway, how do you make an argument for new programs like that? Yeah. So I, given my initial definition of attribution, basically, you know, connecting marketing activity to revenue to show the value of that activity. I would say attribution is not the right tool to answer this mm. question. So I would actually okay, take good, a good point. Yeah, I would actually take a step back and basically say this is kind of a philosophical question you need to have with, you know, founders or whoever you're working yeah. with first and foremost to basically say, look, when I think of a marketing budget, there's actually really three buckets we're talking about. There's operational costs. That's just the cost of doing business. Right. Like you could cut my program budget to zero, but you're still going to need a website. It might not be the (laughs) most beautiful website, but like you're still like in this day and age, like that's basically like a operational cost that, you know, and I think there are a lot of different things like that. And you can kind of debate, you know, what's operational versus, you know, what's the other buckets. But I would say things like, you know, your MA platform, you know, your mm. Salesforce platform of marketing has a share of that the technology, uh, your website. Yeah. You know, like certain fundamental technologies, you know, I think you could say things like Sendosa reach desk, you know, webinar platforms, whatever, maybe are not operational, but yeah, there are certain core mm, you know, things that I would put in the operational bucket. And that's just kind of like, hey, let's just agree we need these things. And like, but I don't need to spend like hours and hours and hours trying to figure out how, you know, to show ROI here. Maybe yeah, okay. you, you, you just you just do it at the finance level when you look at sales and marketing expenses all together and figure out like, you know, at that level, fine. But everyone at, agrees we need yeah, these things. Yeah. So I think that's one bucket. Then I would say there is a second bucket, which is called brand. Mm-hmm. And brand bucket is exactly what we're talking about, like podcasts, things like video series that primarily get engaged on in LinkedIn. And thus, you know, it's harder to capture attribution, you know, uh, community, like, yeah, community, uh, you know, billboards, uh, yeah. you know, all, all yeah. of those, all of those type of things like. I think there's a just a philosophical, sure, we can go down the road of doing brand sentiment studies and, and blah, blah, blah. But like, like no CFO wants to spend money on those at a high startup <laughs> stage. So there's there's just this real philosophical conversation of like, yeah, how much do we agree that this is important and to what extent, right? And I think there's going to be probably some executive teams who basically say this is not important at all. And you almost kind of need to just sneak it into other items. And the reality mm-hmm. is you're just not going to get a lot of budget to run billboards, you know, in on the 101 or whatever. Then there's, you know, the other extreme, you know, and, and I think we can think of like Gong, who, you know, the Super Bowl ads as, you know, a series right. or e company. And like they must have had some conversation somewhere that says this was really important. This is really important for us. And they probably have some vague notion of, hey, when we did this ad, 
we saw a spike in traffic here and we got a bunch more calls and I can't actually match them up in an attribution model, but our gut tells us I can this see. is working. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. You know, it's like when Coinbase ran their Super Bowl ad and it broke their website, right? Like right. <laughs> no attribution model is going to say that Super Bowl ad broke your website. But yep. you can fairly confidently say, yeah, those are connected. We should keep investing in, in things like that. So, I, you know, and then I think you could also look at other metrics because there are brand, you know, you could look at LinkedIn followers, LinkedIn engagement. So I'll give you a, a great example. We did a video series called Dogs and Docs, primarily promoted on LinkedIn. And uh, we were trying to, you know, and, and we got a lot of what you talked about, like, wow, we, you know, we, we were at events. We saw you on LinkedIn. Great series. We got all this like good mojo. And what finally pushed us over the edge is we did some analysis and we basically said in first half, the top 10 posts, organic engagement, eight out of 10 of them were in Q1 and five out of 10 of them were dogs and docs. And, yeah. and so we basically said, look, good mojo clearly has a benefit on our social organic earned media presence and we can drive down costs. This seems like a program that's still worth doing. Worth. And, yeah. and our CEO and our CFO agreed. So nice. I like it. I like it. All right. I know we're coming up on time, but I do want to hit one, one last piece here. And, and we, we kind of hinted on it earlier, but actually refining the model and learning and adjusting the model. Sure. So how do you think about, all right, great. It's implemented. It's a quarter later, or how much longer should you wait? Yeah. And then how do you actually go about refining them? So I'll say one of the challenges <laughs> that came up with the model, and uh, my company is a bunch of really smart lawyers, right? Who are who are looking yeah. for every vulnerability and you know, <laughs> a very literal, right? You know, one of the feedback for our model, there's a lot of assumptions being made here, right? Mm. You know, like, why 50% if it's last touch? Is that should mark is that really 50% of the credit should go to marketing? You know, why 20% of it? You know, so I think that was one of the challenges in rolling out. And also why I've realized, you know, the weakness of a multi-touch model, which is why I'm now calling it an influence model, is yeah, it's all based on assumptions, right? Like <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. I, I mean, unless you have, I do have to say, I did meet the data science team at Box once who built their multi-touch model. And they had all these statistical things that they were doing with it that really I have I couldn't even repeat to you on this this call. Like I would maybe think maybe they have a little bit more of a mathematical way of saying, yeah, this is actually what should be attributed to marketing. But for most of our situations, like we don't have the resources to get there. Right. So I think, you know, that was just really realizing that and recognizing oh, this isn't like the end all, you know, whatever. And actually just shifting, hey, this is an influence model. We're just trying to show other ways marketing is influencing the sales cycle. I think that was a almost an adjustment in how we talked about it internally. The one thing we also really quickly realized was uh, we were over attributing certain channels, right? So we, we do the model and then we were like, man, according to this, we should be giving all our money to direct mail. <laughs> inherently felt wrong. And so as we dug in, I think direct mail is like generating $140 of revenue per dollar you put in the channel or something crazy like that. And so the more we dug in, what we realized was one of the number one plays of direct mail is exactly what we talked about at the end. There's a closer and late stage deal and they they go into the direct mail store and they send a closing gift or whatnot and we were basically giving 20 percent of all these closed one deals to the attribution model for one touch point that really marketing had very little to do with and so what we actually did at that point was created a scale so marketing influenced anywhere pre-sal so anywhere pre-opportunity then you get 20 points and then the further mm. along the sales cycle you go, the touch point got less and less points. So I think now percentage points, I mean, so now if in that situation in direct mail, and that's the only touch point, I think that direct mail touch point only gets 5%. And when we adjusted that, everything kind of rearranged itself. And I said, yeah, this looks like how I think it should be behaving. You know, the other things we discovered was, oh, why is this channel being underrepresented? So it, it unintended benefit of the model is it's showing us where we're actually missing data in a way that we really mm. didn't know before. And yeah, yeah, I, I think that's, that's probably kind of a lot of the adjustments we're, we're, we're doing now. 
kind of some checks and balances, like use your experience in marketing just uh, to layer on some critical thinking and say, does this smell right? Does this look right? And then just kind of adjust from there. Yeah. And I think that's the whole benefit of the the influence model. Like what I've realized is I'm not going to use this to basically like I would never go in front of our all hands and say, according to our influence model, marketing generated, you know, $2 million of revenue last quarter. Like, Mm -hmm. I just wouldn't do that because it's really hard to understand how I came up with that number. But when I start looking at it month over month or quarter over quarter, it's starting to give me, like, because I know all the data is getting calculated the same way. If Q1, I did 2 million, Q2, I did 3 million, and then all of a sudden Q3, I did half a million, now I have some really interesting data to look into and figure out what's going on. And right. it's, you know, it's like, like the benefits of the model have been way less about this is what marketing has generated and more like, you know, like it's, it's that like sniff test of like, is what's happening what I expect, you know, given what I know about the programs I'm running and the market conditions. Cool. I love it. All right. Do you have time? Yeah. To, to do okay, cool. All right. So the, yeah, that, that was a pretty deep dive. Honestly, we we probably could have gone another few hours if we wanted to. But let's transition to the last segment of the show, which is this week on LinkedIn. So I'm just gonna pull it up here. Yeah, I think this will be a good one for you too, because we talk about this sort of stuff all the time. I found your last episode on how to land a great job really helpful as I am actively searching for my next role. One thing you glossed over too quickly is what questions do you ask companies during the interview process? Would love to hear your thoughts. Love the pod. Keep it up. All right. So yeah. So just for your, for your context, last last episode, we talked about uh, yeah how RevOps people can land great jobs. And we went through the whole process. And this person, I guess, is following up. What questions should you be asking companies? And yeah, you should be interviewing the company as much as they yeah. are interviewing you. So you want to want to go for it? And we, we could just trade back and forth, I'm sure. Sure. Yeah, I mean, I think there's two buckets of questions I would dig into. And I have to admit, my guess is your success in asking some of these questions is going to depend on on the level, uh, particularly mm, yeah. in the first bucket, which is uh, financial performance, right? Like, yes, I yes. think the two things you really want to evaluate a company you're joining is, is this company going to be around in a year? Or, <laughs> I mean, frankly, like, how are they doing financially? Yeah. And two, what's the culture like? Because yes. I think those two levers are basically the things that's going to make your your job enjoyable or not, right? Like <laughs> yeah. you could have a company with amazing culture, but if the finances are terrible, the culture is going to tank really quickly because it has to, right? It, it, the company is going to have to protect itself and it's going to lead to some very difficult conversations, even with the best people in management. So, And you might be in the same situation in another year later. Yeah, for yeah. Job. Exactly. Yeah. You know, questions I like to ask is what are your revenue, you know, numbers look like? You know, what, what have your goals been? What has your growth been over the last three, four, five years? You know, how are you, you know, doing in, in terms of meeting your numbers, right? Like, like those yeah. type of things, especially we're talking to a lot of operators and, you know, marketing leaders, like are things you should feel the right that to ask. Now they might Absolutely, answer yeah. or not, but, but yeah. Or you could even offer to sign an NDA or whatever. Yeah. I remember one company I was uh, I was doing an onsite with. I flew over to California and and uh, we were we were going pretty deep. And I I was talking with the the CEO about the numbers. And I was like, okay, like like let's let's really dig into your CAC and your CAC payback and your CAC yeah. ratio. And he was giving me some like CAC ratio specifically was one that he was giving me some crazy numbers. I was like, how do you get this good of CAC and why, yeah. why don't you pour in as much fuel on the fire as you can right now? And I dug into it. And this is the thing, like you really have to dig into, you have to know how to calculate it and know what to look for and ask those follow-up questions. Yeah. But it turns out, all right, th- this was actually six month old data. He gave me the CAC for before they added 11 new sales reps. Yep. or the CAC uh, ratio before the ages. And then he was also not calculating it on a gross margin adjusted basis. Yep. So when you actually take those things into account, they had a below average CAC, Yeah, yep. right? You know, the other interesting thing is, I mean, what I love about that example is now, like that performance question also is showing a little bit about the culture, right? Like, and, yeah, and totally. that, and, yeah. yeah, in that situation, it could be, oh, the culture is, oh, this guy is not, as precise about his numbers as, or this person is not as precise about their numbers as they should be. But maybe 
like think about it the other way. Maybe it really was a crazy cocktail TV ratio, and and this person's answer is something like, "Yeah, you know, like I just don't want to like overextend myself." Like that to me, as a growth marketer, is gonna be a huge yellow flag, a red flag of like, "All right, even yeah. when I'm like like killing it, I'm never gonna get budget." You're not for gonna anything. get the yeah, exactly. Yeah. What yeah. other question that I it's, it's one one of my favorite questions and uh, is also, and I feel like I I have avoided some some train wrecks as a result of it. But who do you think the best marketer, or who's the best marketer you've ever worked with, and why? Or yeah, who's the best you know RevOps? leader you've ever had and why. And I remember one time, uh, yeah, a guy was like, all right, uh, who's the best marketer? Well, I've never worked with him, but like, I really like, he said, yeah, it was Gary Vaynerchuk, Steve Jobs, and uh, Elon Musk. And I was like, mm-hmm. yeah, that's the bar that you're setting for me. No way. Yeah. There's no way. Yeah. yeah I mean, uh, <laughs> that's pretty funny. This was a marketer <laughs> who said that or like a, a founder this, CEO? This- the CEO, I was like, yeah, oh, I got the it, best got marketer it. you've worked with. And that's what he told me. I was like, yeah, that's the bar that now I'm set against <laughs> yeah, for this yeah, role. No, I, was gonna, I was also thinking if that was like a CMO or a, a marketer that you were trying to work for, I'm like, really? <laughs> <That's> <laughs> like, yeah, I mean, the culture questions for me, I don't overthink. I think the simple ones are often the best. Like, mm. why did you join? Uh, you know, What's your work life like after hours? I think mm. that's a real, real good one. Like, what are your expectations after hours and on, on the weekend? I think that really gets a sense of like, uh, you know, like, does the company value your time? You know, this goes back a lot to the performance piece, but I, I love asking about like team growth and headcount. Like, I think on a marketing team in particular, you know, headcount trajectory is a really good indication of how the overall company is doing and and how they value marketing. Here's one for marketers in particular. I mean, especially if you're in a senior level marketing role, making sure you're talking to a sales counterpart, if not the sales counterpart, and really making sure like they understand the value of marketing and and, and what it is. So, you know, like what's the best marketing relationship you've had and, and how did that function? I think is a great question. And I'll tell you, I've literally talked to two heads of sales who told me, I've never had a great marketing relationship or a BDR relationship. I've never seen a successful marketing or BDR team, uh, but I'm willing to have my mind changed. Like literally two heads of sales in a row told me that. And uh, it was a terrible experience. Uh, <laughs> so I think that's that's a great one. You know, if you get to talk to the CFO, CEO, I mean, they'll probably ask you this question, but you could ask them, how do you think about marketing budget? You know, like, like you know, and... And what I would say is if they focus purely on ROI without kind of a certain recognition that, you know, kind of going back to another conversation, like, like there are things you just kind of need to spend money for, you know, that could be a problem too. Right. So. Yep. Exactly. um, Yeah. 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 One question that I like to ask too, and it goes to the culture side of things is just like, well, I mean, it's a series of questions, but it's basically digging into how do people get recognized and rewarded and promoted there, Sure. right? And Because I've I've seen places too, where it's like, they value work-life balance, but the people who are getting promoted are the ones that are single or the ones that actually just work 24-7, never turn it off, you know? And I think that just goes directly in opposition with the culture that they say they have. Because a lot of times people just use the culture as kind of a, or those like cultural values use on their website as recruiting tools rather than actual drivers of the culture there. Yep. That makes me think like who you ask these questions to are almost as important as what question you ask, right? Because Mm, if you ask your hiring manager a lot of these questions, like if they've been doing it a long time, they know (laughs) they're going to have the right right answer. Yeah. Yeah, They know what the right answer is. So, you know, these are great questions for, you know, when you're on the panel round and you're meeting your peers or, you know, peers from different teams and stuff, because I I think they're going to one, you know, they're going to be a little bit probably more truth in how that goes. Right. Or yeah. So, yep. All right, cool. Anything else on things you would ask the company? No, I I think we, you know, it's it's funny. It's, It's, it's never something I've, you know what? I think it's not something I, besides the performance piece, because I think that's stuff you need to get directly from their mouths. It's, it's not something I focus too much on because what I care more about is actually the back channel. <laughs> and, oh, and, good uh, point. Yeah, yeah totally. And, and, and so, you know, I would say, you know, going into an interview process, knowing if you have any second or third degree connections that can 
can back channel into the org. This Absolutely. probably is harder in smaller early stage startups, but in more established companies, like especially if you're a senior leader, you can almost always find something. I think that's probably where if I'm really interviewing a company where I would, would focus on understanding like culture and, and how, how does this really go over, you know, the questions I ask. So, yeah. Yeah. You know, I, I, I love that point because yeah, like you said, people can say the right things. Like it's easy to lie for a 30 minute interview or, or fake it for a 30 minute interview. But when you're actually doing a back channel with someone who worked with them for X amount of time, yeah, totally. I love that. Any any thoughts? On, so I was actually ch- chatting with a, a, a colleague. Uh, she actually was pretty adamant about actually talking to, asking to talk to board members. It's not something that I've thought about, but it is something that I companies have used to close me. Let me, let me just put you in touch with one of our board members. Yeah. Yeah. It's personally not, not that interesting to me. I generally find board members pretty removed from the day-to-day. I guess this would matter to me. So I, I report to our CMO, So and I've, I've never been in the, the top seat. So I guess if I was reporting directly to the CEO and had some board responsibilities, it would matter more to me. But for most of my my seats, I mean, uh, they're so far removed from my day-to-day. I don't really get <laughs> much out of them, to be honest. No, that's fair. Yeah. That's that's fair. You know, I've, I've, I've had different relationships with with boards. Yeah, the, luckily, uh, at Crosscheck, I have a very good relationship with yeah. the board. Maybe that's because I haven't reported a down quarter yet, but, you know, <laughs> that's always a good thing. Yeah. All right. Joe, it's been a pleasure. This is another episode on the longer side, but we got into a lot of good things. If anyone wants to reach out to you, connect with you, talk about attribution with you, how can they do that? Yeah, LinkedIn is probably the best place. Uh, Joseph Lee at Entra. I do screen my connection requests. So, you know, just just say, hey, you know, I uh, heard you on the podcast and and uh, have a few questions about attribution and, and I'll, I'll definitely connect with you then. Awesome. Thanks, Joe. And everyone else, please keep sending us your LinkedIn questions. Send them over to Jordan, send them to me, send them to Anna, and uh, we'll eventually answer them at some point, whether it's uh, one of these questions or an Office Hours episode. Also, don't forget to, to rate us on, on any podcast of your choice or player of your choice, highest rating possible. Mm-hmm.